This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is October 21st, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Gay. I was at WRHU from the fall of 94 through the spring of 99. And what shows or programs did you work on? I worked on a handful of them. Um, I think I started with the classics like everybody else did. And I, I enjoyed actually doing the classics. I didn't really want to be an on-air personality my whole life. Um, so the fact that I didn't have to do a whole lot of talking was great. Um, but I, I spent some time doing that for a year or two. And I spent quite a bit of time working on the Jazz Cafe for a little while. I also spent some time working on the morning show for a couple of years, uh, helping out doing community events a couple of days a week. Did you have any titles or positions at the station? I spent, I want to say, two years as the remote operations chief. I think it was my sophomore year and my junior year. So it would have been you know, fall of 95 and forward from there on for two years. Okay. When you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have a nickname? I started using my own name. Um, so got a funny last name. And that funny last name doesn't sound so good when it rhymes with the show name you're doing. So when you're doing the Jazz Cafe with Jason Gay, I, I uh, ended up changing it for, for at that point in time. So working on the morning show at the time with, uh, I think it was Brian Gruby and Brian Scott were hosting. Um, we, were, we were working to come up with a, a creative name. So I was a big Superman buff as a kid. Uh, so I went by Jay Clark on the air because I, I couldn't do the Jazz Cafe with Jason Gay. I was like, nope, not doing something that rhymes. Interesting. So Clark for Clark Kent. Yep. Nice. Let's go back to the beginning. Two-part question. Um, what was it that first brought you to the station? And then if you could describe what it was like when you got there, for those of us who weren't there at the same time. Sure. So I grew up in Boston, and the high school I went to had a radio station. So I started on the air, got my FCC license when I was in ninth grade. Um. We had a little 10-watt radio station back at high school, and I quickly realized I want to do something with audio production. I want to do something with radio broadcasting. This is so cool. But my high school station was, you know, at 10 watts, you couldn't, you couldn't hear it a mile away if there was a leaf that blew in the wrong direction. Um, so I had a cousin at the time, I think toward my junior or senior year of high school, that was going to Hofstra. And I was like, all right, I'll go check it out. It sounds kind of cool. I know it's a little bit of a drive. And I took a ride down for a few days and stayed with him. He was a communications major at the time. And I was like, this is awesome. And I fell in love with the campus. I fell in love with um, just getting a tour of Dempster Hall at the time. I was like, this is amazing. This probably would have been in maybe 92 or 93 that I took a ride down there to see it. Um, and I want to go there. So I got there fall in 94. And I hadn't seen the radio station at all at that point. I knew it was in Memorial Hall. I knew that they were building out new facilities but I hadn't seen it at all. I had no idea what to expect. It was just, I knew I wanted to go to school for radio and I have to find a way to get involved in this quickly. So I believe there was like an activity fair. I want I, I, I don't remember. It's a little bit vague to me at this point. It could have been in the student center. It could have been out in the quad in front of Memorial. I don't really remember, but I met a handful of people. Couldn't tell you who I met at this point. Um, and signed up to get into the, the training class. And that was probably the first year they had real formal training classes in what's now uh, Herbert Hall, but in, in the new Dempster Hall annex where they built WRHU state, uh, studios. 
So I would say my first real memories of it are going through that training class, which was led by Bruce Avery, Sue Zizza, uh, Dave Koenig was uh, the chief announcer at the time, and he was running the class alongside, I think, Don Dressler and maybe Paul Cordella. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember if they were all in there at the same point in time, but that's those are my first real memories of it and, and getting to know people. So when you first got to campus and then you went to this activity fair, that would have been the, the fall of 94. You hadn't uh, the, the trip that you had done to campus early, that had been a couple of years before or a year or two? It was before. either a year or two before. My memory's a little bit fuzzy at this point. It was a long time ago. <laughs> sure. No, no, that's, uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to get a sense of that. So, so you get down there and, and you know you want to do this. So you sign up for this class right away. Was it, um, what were your expectations for, for, for training? Because you had some experience, whether it was a small station or not. You had yep. some experience working at a high school station. Did you kind of expect them to go, oh, hey, you're, you know, you got an FCC license. Let's go. Or did you have an expectation of that class? Uh, well, that was, you know, 18-year-old me being young and immature saying, yeah, I can do all this already. Why do I have to sit through this class? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm really glad I did. Um, I, I felt like there was a lot of stuff that, you know, engineering-wise that I was already really comfortable with but not an expert at, right? Nobody had ever trained me in my high school radio station and nobody ever gave me feedback. And I think that actually was a detriment to me. It didn't do me any justice when I first got to college because I I was sitting there like, all right, well, I know how to do all this. And I, you know, 18 year old, you get arrogant real quickly. Mm -hmm. I can do all this stuff. No one's ever given me any feedback or critiqued me. I, I, I must be doing great. Yeah, well, when I got that first bit of feedback about, hey, you should be doing things this way, I was just like, how dare you criticize me like this? I've been doing this for four years and no one's ever criticized me before. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it, was, it was a little bit of an eye-opener for me. Um, I really enjoyed the announcing part of that class. And I got involved in helping train, you know, starting in the spring of that year, I got involved with the training class as well, doing some of the announcing and engineering training uh, with, with, other, um, team, with new team members at that point. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to that that high sure. school experience a little bit, and if you could talk a little bit about that station, what you know, how many hours was it on the air? What kind of equipment was it? And and you said there wasn't much supervision. Was there a teacher or somebody involved? How did you get involved with the station? Uh, there was a teacher that was involved. We were only on the air, I'd say, at two o'clock p.m. when school got out till about ten o'clock ten o'clock at night. So what's oh, that? Okay. Eight hours a day. Um, not much. We did, there were four different shows every afternoon and two hour shifts. You could do, it was all free format. There was no planning on it. Um, you had to keep your air check tapes. So they had what they called little brother in the, uh, in the studio, you popped a cassette in it and you'd have to turn that tape in every couple of weeks. And they would just listen to make sure you're not swearing on the air. Right. They, mm. they don't want to, they, they don't want you to, they don't want to get in trouble for anything. And I'm like, even if you were, no one's going to listen to it. It doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, it was real free form. I got involved in it. It's like, I've always kind of had a, a knack for playing around with technology. I was like, this sounds cool. Let's go see what it's about. And I did it in my first show. And I was like, this is awesome. And I totally want to do this. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with radio. I knew I wanted to get into it in some way, shape or form. I, I think as I got to Hofstra, I found that there was this awesome music program as well. I ended up minoring in music, majoring in radio, and it was really more electronic music and playing around with like the production side of things. And I really loved doing that work. 
because hmm. um, you alluded to this before that you weren't it wasn't your plan to be uh, an on-air voice or at least it wasn't your main priority it seems like you liked uh, you said the behind behind the scenes working with technology maybe working on the board yep. um, so so I guess as you arrived on campus you had an idea that you wanted to do more behind the scenes or did you just think you know let's see what happens I didn't know I didn't know when I got on campus you know it was it was one of those things I, I've always realized my personality is not not quick enough I don't I can't crack the joke fast enough I'm not witty enough to to be that on-air personality that's got to make you know entertain people I don't have that people don't tend to gravitate toward me and I knew that so I was trying to play to my strengths the technology side of it was my strength as I learned more about it and learned more about engineering in the radio station, learned more about engineering and recording music specifically. So I did that with um, uh, both Herb Deutsch and Gary Philadelphia in the music department mm. um, and doing, taking some electronic music classes with them. I got some exposure to how do you, rec- how do you record musicians in a multi-track format? So that was really cool to learn and try to hear about that. And I could translate that as soon as I brought stuff back over to WRHU, I was like, oh, cool. I can go sit in the multi-track studio and I know how all this stuff works now. You know, I know how to make sound effects and understand how, how to process them all. Um, so that was a lot of fun. That got me into working in some of the theater clubs on campus, right? So there was some club theater organizations on campus. I think it's now called Masquerade. It used to be like 108B and doing sound for all their shows because I loved the whole sound production aspect of things. I wish it turned into a career. Um, <laughs> you know, I think one of the things, one of the things that I learned very quickly, I think a little too late was I knew what kind of lifestyle I wanted to live and the lifestyle of being a sound engineer or working in broadcasting, uh, wasn't going uh, to, let me rephrase that. The, the compensation that comes along with working in, <laughs> in, in broadcasting or in sound production wasn't going to afford me that lifestyle. So it's now kind of a hobby that I've taken up. I, you know, I'll help out with my kids in their school, school plays or um, just volunteer and try to give advice to, to students there nowadays and work and help design sound for, for the local theater companies when I can. Um, but more volunteer work than anything. Oh, that's neat. That's neat. But yeah, you, you know, when you're 18, 19 years old, the hours and the effort that goes into a job like that, that it doesn't matter. That's just what you're doing because you want to do it. And then doing that as a career, the hours, the compensation, it's, it's not quite as appealing. So exactly. Uh, I guess you realize that as an undergrad. I realized it, I think really late in my senior year, I, I, I matured very slowly. I felt like I, you know, I looked at it after looking back on things. I feel like, you know, emotional, my, my emotional intelligence was kind of slow to catch up. And by the time I realized it, I was like, I should probably go back to grad school and learn some business stuff. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. learn how to learn how to get a job and do something else with my life. You know, I want to I want to be able to take the skills I've learned here. And I did learn quite a bit that I can apply to my I work in technology today that I can apply to what I do on a day to day basis. You know, uh, working working in the radio station taught me very quickly how to speak into a microphone, how to how to address an audience you know, how to, how to understand your audience when you're writing scripts or, or putting things together, you know, you want to get to the point real quickly. You don't want to, you don't want to, you know, carry on for an hour at a time. Right. Was that stuff that you feel like you picked up in the initial announcing class? Oh yeah. Koenig, or was that stuff that you learned by experience? 
Uh, a little bit of both. Um, Dave taught a lot about that stuff. Um, a lot of it was observing him. I sat in with him. I watched him and uh, Butch D'Ambrosio do the morning show every so often. We'd just kind of come in and shadow and sit there like a fly on the wall just to try to understand how they produced that show. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of it was just kind of listening to what they were saying and then seeing how they implemented it in practice. That must have been a lot of fun watching Butch and Dave. I know they were always very interesting. They were great. To to. Yeah. They were awesome. They were absolutely awesome. And I, I'll tell you a little funny story. Um, and I, I found out about this way after the fact, but I want to say that spring of my freshman year, so it would have been spring of 95 when I started helping with that with the training class, Dave pulled me aside during the training class and he's like, all right, we need to we need to do something to capture everybody's attention about the differences between obscenity and decency and slander. I was like, okay, what are we going to do? So he takes me down the hall. We go into one of the, we go into the two track studio and we write up this little script. And I'll tell you to this day, it's been almost 30 years. I still have that script printed up on a piece of paper in my basement. I know exactly where it is. Um, and I will never in a million years, let my kids read it. Cause it was, <laughs> it was absolutely, you know, 18, 19 year old me being, completely crude and vile. Like, all right, I'm going to give an example of obscenity and I'm dropping F-bombs left and right. And I'm going to, you know, give an example of, of indecency. And I'm talking about adult film stars and stuff like that and things mm -hmm. that they were doing, all these lewd acts. And I'm like, all right, I got to just be really blunt with the examples I'm giving. And then I did something about slander and I'm like talking, I think I made up a story about Bruce. Um, you know, it was all, it was all terrible stuff, but it was to make a point. Well, Bruce right. like, messaged me, I want to say probably 20 years later. So maybe 10, 15 years ago. And he's like, I just want you to know, we're still using that tape. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's awesome. I need a copy of that. And I still haven't gotten a copy of it. And I'm probably not going to at this point, but I have the script and it's, it's still amusing me. That's great. That's great. And that's, and that's just a, a thing that Dave, you know, probably said, Oh, we, we got to throw something together, not giving it a lot of thought. And here's something that you guys really, you really nailed it. Apparently. Uh, I, apparently, apparently, you know, the, the vile and crude teenager in myself showed itself. And uh, yeah, we made, we made a, a, a filthy tape and I was like, I will never speak like this in the radio studio again. <laughs> um, but it, but it got the message across. And I think it got a couple of laughs out of the people in the classroom too. I think I got a couple of appalled faces as well. Probably wouldn't fly to run that tape today. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. And, and probably, you're probably pushing boundaries at, at that point as well, but you got away yes. with it. So, yep. Um, what, what else do you remember from those, those early days or those training classes? Was there, did you have to do an audition or anything like that to get on the air? Uh, we didn't need to do auditions at that point. The, the training classes were fairly small at that point. There were maybe 15 of us in those classes at, at a time, you know, the w, Bruce had just got there my freshman year. Um, it was, I don't want to say it was a crowded organization, but I don't think we were turning anybody away either. Right. Um, there was definitely getting, you know, announcing cleared, which I got announcing cleared pretty quickly. I got engineering cleared pretty quickly. I got combo cleared pretty quickly. Um, I think my first time engineering on the station was probably a Tony Jackson show. I got called in at the last minute, like someone can someone come and help him out. And I'm sitting here like, what is this Irish country stuff? What are we, what do you, what am I doing? This isn't what I want to play. And then I think I, I understood after the fact that, okay, this is, this is, really a learning experience and it's not meant to be your, your top 40 radio that, that you're used to listening to or anything like that. 
Right, not necessarily the thing that that you were interested in, but I'm sure you learned pretty quickly that that Tony had quite an audience. And, he was great, and it, and it was a it was quite a program. It was a lot of fun working with Tony and Maureen. He was a blast to work with. I was sitting there like, I think I remember calling home and telling my parents, oh, I'm going to be, you know, going to be going onto the radio today. I get to go engineer a show. They're like, oh, cool. What is it? I'm like, it's Irish country. And they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's been it was the pretty fun of Hofstra Radio for a long time. And <laughs> it's, 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 for those not in the know, they're like, polka and Irish country and, and exactly so so you had been on the air yep in high school and you had your license and you had experience and and your first time engineering for Tony were you excited about that were you nervous did you what did you expect engineering I never really got nervous about it was it was comboing that I always got nervous about for you know I get the butterflies in your stomach I'm like oh I gotta go do this I don't know what I'm gonna say I wasn't very good at planning my, my thoughts out beforehand. And that's, that's exactly why I didn't want to be an on-air personality. You know, I had to get used to it and I forced myself, but it was always forcing myself out of my comfort zone to, to be, you know, on the air and announcing. If I was reading copy, that was one thing that was easy. It was the improvising. It was having a conversation. I didn't know what to talk about that people would be interested in. So you were worried in your mind that whatever came out or came up, wouldn't necessarily be something that would hold their attention. Exactly. But then I imagine with some practice and some experience, you got used to figuring that out and, and being able to roll with things. I got, I wouldn't say used to it. I got, I shouldn't say, it. I got used to it. I got a little bit more comfortable with it. I never loved it. <laughs> okay. so. Fair, enough. Fair enough. Do you remember getting on the mic the first time? Not at WRHU, no. Do you remember your first time in high school? Absolutely. And it was an okay. absolute hot mess. <laughs> Please tell us more. <laughs> oh, it was just, I didn't, you know, it was me and two of my friends from high school. The three of us were on the air. We, we created this show. We had no name for it. We had no idea what we wanted to play. We were just, the high school radio station didn't have any, any music library. So you would, you would literally bring a rack of CDs with you. Like I'd carry like this big giant you remember those big cases of like CD, you know, case logic CDs that would hold like 60 or 60 to 90 CDs in them. I would carry like two of those things into the studio with me heavy as hell. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to play. And then my buddies that would come with me, they would bring music in and we all had different music, you know, styles and choices that we'd want to hear. So we would sit there on the air and argue about what to play next. And I was like, this is terrible. Okay. Now, now we're getting to the root of things, the compelling, you know, what, what are we going to talk about? Exactly. Three teenagers complaining or, or arguing <laughs> about music choices. Now, yeah, you now we're thinking about this. Exactly. You know, you <laughs> put a, put three 14 year olds in a room and say, can you go and pick, pick a bunch of music to play on a radio show? Sure. Are you going to have, is it going to have any cohesiveness? Absolutely not. So I, I guess, it, you know, my next question is usually, when did you feel comfortable getting on the air? And, and I think you've made it clear it wasn't your favorite thing to do, but it's something that, that you did, you know, whether it's on the air or, or working the board. When did you feel comfortable? Like, yes, I've made the right choice. This is this is what I'm doing with my time. Um, I would say by the spring of my freshman year, I knew exactly I knew this is what I wanted to be doing. Um, and I knew that as I got more into it my sophomore year and started taking some more radio classes. I remember the old Comp 21 class that Sue would teach. Um, I loved that class. I think I I worked as, what would she call it? I think it was called a grant, a grant position. It was like a teacher's mm -hmm. aide for it. I worked as a, as a grant for that class once or twice. Um, 
you know, cutting and splicing tape, you know, physical tape. I think I still have a, an old uh, quarter inch two track reel to reel player in my house. And I have some old tapes that I had from back in the day and they still work all stored tails out. And, uh, you know, they're, uh, it's, it's kind of fun to play them back once in a while and see if the machine still works. Very nice. Well, that, that was going to be my question was, was comp 21 still, uh, on the analog side? Cause that was right about the time that things started going digital in the commercial world, but that, I guess that hadn't filtered down to Hofstra quite yet. No, we were still playing. Uh, I shouldn't say that when I was doing, I was hosting the classics my freshman year and probably part of my sophomore year. Most of the classical music was still being played on vinyl. Mm -hmm. Um, there was the occasional CD that you would find. Nothing was ever played on cassette. And then you'd find like the evergreens or like the long running community programming that would be on the weekend. A lot of that stuff would be on reel to reel. Right. Yeah. I just, in terms of the production facilities, it was still the multi-track tape and. Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was multi-track tape. It was two track tape. (laughs) Funny story. I ended up getting an internship. I want to say in my junior year over at WLIR. Um, so right around the corner from campus and I was, engineering an interview with um linda lopez was the host who and mm-hmm. it was smash mouth was the band in studio with us and i'm engineering this interview and as they go on to the interview they they decide we're going to play some music i was like great 10 minutes into the interview i mean we've been getting some good content i realized that I had only hit the play button on the reel to reel machine and forgot to actually press record with it. And I was like, you know, raising my hand, like the little shy guy in the background, like, uh, we got to start this over again. Uh, like what? I was like, yeah, I totally forgot to, you know, they're like, and they just, they, they were joking. The band was super cool. They're like, oh yeah, I'll leave it to the intern to do that. I'm like, come on. I can't believe I made a rookie mistake like that, but it was, it was a rookie mistake. And I learned from it and I never did it again. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's that's a tough thing to, to, like you said, raise your hand and admit like, oh, we got to do this over. But uh, I think they were still relatively on their way up then. They probably were, were not not a they had just re- called superstar treatment. Yeah, no, they had just released um, their first singles is that Walking on the Sun at the time. So it would have been 97 around that time. And okay. that was, <laughs> I was just so embarrassed. I was like, I can't believe I just did this. Yeah, we, we, we do make those those mistakes. But um, getting back to, to Hofstra Radio, uh, it sounds like you, you fit in there pretty well socially. When Do you, do you know there's a moment or a time where you felt comfortable hanging out and being around the station in the office during you know times that you weren't necessarily in class or on the air? I was down there all the time. And I don't, to this day, I can't tell you what I was doing down there all the time. Um, I can tell you I got an award at the end of my freshman year. So we had the, um, we had the end of the year banquet every year. And I want to say the very beginning of the freshman year, my parents bought me a pair of rollerblades and I was like, cool, I can skate around campus. I can get everywhere. I, I, you know, again, I lived, I I'm from Boston. I, I lived on campus. So I was like, I didn't have a car there my first year. I was like, I can just, I can get around anywhere really quickly. So I, I put those skates on my feet and I would skate everywhere. And it got to the point where people started in the radio station were all making fun of me. Like, dude, do you ever take those things off your feet? Like I would skate down the hallway in Dempster Hall. I would skate into the broadcast studio. I, so I got this at the end of the year in our, in our banquet, um, there was a, a rollerblading radio award that, <laughs> that was handed to me on a certificate. And I was like, well, that's probably a new one. I don't think that one's ever been given out before. 
So I would say at that point, I got very comfortable with the, with the group of people. I'm like, yeah, it's all self-deprecating. Keep making fun of me for it. It's cool. Yeah. That's always a good sign when, when they've got something to pick on you for, that means, that means they like you, I think. So, uh, so it sounds like you got in pretty good there. So you mentioned Bruce, you mentioned Dave, who else was around in those early days that helped you get comfortable at the station? Um, Adam Chandler, uh, there was a bunch of, I did a bunch of engineering for, um, for some sports broadcasts. So I'd end up hearing like them calling softball games. It was Adam, I think, uh, what was his name? Rob McCula used to go by mm-hmm. tiny. Um, so he used to be around doing some of those sports broadcasts, Lon Samuelson, those guys, I, I would love to engineer sports broadcasts when they were remote and try to figure out what's going on. So those guys got me very comfortable on the engineering side. It was, I always found that very difficult because they're calling a broadcast and if they needed to take five for a break, there was no way, there was no cell phone. There was no way for them to signal to me like, Hey, I need five minutes between things. So I was always like, I got to be at the ready with either a piece of music to play or some news to read off the AP wire or whatever. And I don't think I got that the first couple of times. We never really had a plan going to like, just, Hey, can you come and engineer, engineer a broadcast for us? I'm like, sure. No problem. <laughs> and then I'm just like, what do I do when you guys say you need to take five or we'll be back in five minutes? Like I have no, I'm not getting any, cl- any cues from them. They're not able to communicate with me in any other way. So it was, it was a lot of, it was a big challenge to get it, to get past that gap. Wow. So did you have an interest in sports broadcasting or was it just an opportunity to try something new? It was an opportunity to try something new and, and engineer something differently. Like it's different to engineer you know, mostly, um, mostly announcing and mostly, you know, just the, 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 the speech mm-hmm. as it, as opposed to, you know, mixing music and, and cutting that stuff up together. Did those guys approach you and ask you if you were interested or is it just uh, one of those things like, Hey, we need somebody. And, and you were there on your rollerblades and like, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how it worked. And I was like, and they're like, Oh, this was kind of fun. This worked out well. Want to do it again? It's like, sure. No problem. Very cool. So you're doing you know, regular music shows and, and news shows, you're, you're doing the sports broadcasting and you're doing your, your music uh, production stuff as well. So you must have been spending an awful lot of time in studios in those early days. Yeah, I loved it. it I, I couldn't get enough of it. It was how do I, how do I, if, if there was nothing going on, if there were no classes being done in the two track studios or the multi track studios, it was just going in there and screwing around with like tape and saying, what can I do? Can I practice? cutting some tape and seeing if I can splice it back together. Can I practice? And multi-track was awesome because when I, so my freshman year was the year we moved like the fall of my freshman year, we moved out of Memorial hall and into Dempster. Um, and they didn't move the multi-track studio for probably another year. So the two track studio came over, the broadcast studio came over, but multi-track stayed in the basement of Memorial for probably, it was at least six months. I want to say it was about a year if my memory serves me right. So, after I started taking some of those electronic music classes, I got a little ahead of myself. I hadn't been cleared to use any of the multi-track equipment yet at that point in time, but because I had taken some of the music classes, which had very similar equipment and similar types of concepts, I got to go into those studios and play around with it, which was a lot of fun. It was like, all right, well, what can I do? What, you know, first time I said multi-track, it was like, what is this? And then someone said, oh, it's an eight-track tape player. And I'm sitting here like thinking like 1970s, like, eight track cart cartridge, you know, <laughs> like, nope, that's not what it is. It's an eight track reel to reel machine. Um, 
and understanding the concepts of, all right, well, I can go and record something on these two tracks now, and then I can play it back. And as I'm playing it back live, I can record something else on other two tracks. And I can almost have a whole conversation with myself and have all the, all the audio completely isolated. Um, so it was a lot of playing around with that sort of thing and really honing my skills in that. And I, I had a lot of fun doing, doing that sort of thing. I couldn't tell you what I did it for. It might've just been for myself. It might've been trying to produce stuff in there. I don't really remember at this point. Um, I guess prior to you being there, the multi-track production course was taught by Jeff Krause. Um, I, I don't know. Was, was there a, a four credit course in that? Was Sue Zizza teaching that? Do you remember? I don't remember to be perfectly honest with you. I know I learned I learned the multi-track production through the music department, okay. not and like Hofstra's music department, not WRHU's music department. Right. Yeah, I was just I was just curious because uh, I I don't know I, I hadn't thought about what what had happened to that. Interesting. Um, so we have the benefit of hindsight. You have the benefit of these memories and friendships and and all this experience that you've gotten. And you kind of alluded to this before, but when you're 18 years old and you show up and you move from Boston to Long Island, what did you hope WRHU would mean for you and what did it become? I hoped it was going to be a career or a stepping stone into a career. Um, And while it wasn't the career I ended up choosing, it was probably the, one of the single best learning experiences I had in my life, right? It was, the radio station was a business and whether we liked it or not, it was a business. And I think I learned a lot about how businesses work and what needs to go into those businesses. Um, you know, all the different roles that have to happen. Um, you know, there's people doing promotions, there's people doing, uh, sports broadcasts and music directing and, and, and then you break down the music into different, various different varieties of music. So there's classics, there's jazz, there's rock, there's alternative, all this fun stuff that you've got to figure out, understanding that you've got to learn to cater to your audience. All of those skills are applicable in life, right? Whether, you know, again, as I said, I work in technology as an IT consultant now. So I still have to understand who my audience is when I talk to my customers. Like, am I talking to a C-level executive or am I talking to, you know, your, your typical individual contributor who's helping out on a team? And because the messaging that I'm going to give to those people are going to be very different. I think I got all of those skills through practice at the radio station. Well, Jason, this has been uh, a tremendous amount of fun. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you took the time to, to share your stories, and I'm going to come up with more questions, and, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Brian.